0: Good morning. morning. We are thrilled that you are here this morning, and it is our joy to be with you, thankful for your presence and for the opportunity to assemble together and praise and worship God, commune with our Savior, and study a portion of his word. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to Isaiah 55, we're going to continue uh, this chapter. Uh, If you were here last week, or maybe listened to the sermon online, you knew we were in this chapter last week. And we were extolling the fact that we can return to God, regardless of what we have done, regardless of what we and how we've behaved, that God will inevitably have us back if we will do those things that are prescribed in this chapter. And we often do that, and it is right and proper to do that, to praise God and to give thanks to God for His willingness to have us back in a relationship with Him when we have been the ones that broke the relationship. But rarely do we talk about why. Why can we return to God? Why is that even allowed? And in this very same chapter, Isaiah explains why that is allowed by God. And this morning, we want to finish the chapter and note those things. There are, just as there were in the previous sermon, there are three reasons why. And he spells those out beginning in verse number 8 to the end of the chapter. And the first reason why we can return to God is expressed in the expression, His ways. God's ways are what allow us to return and have a relationship with Him. Beginning in verse number 8, Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God speaking through the prophet, nor are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Before we get to explaining this verse, let's clear up a misunderstanding and an explanation that I've heard in the past, which is often given concerning these words. And that that misunderstanding goes something like this, that God is divine in His nature and we are merely humans. And worse than that, at least according to some, we are sinful humans. And therefore, we cannot attain to God's ways, and we can't then be like God. His ways are higher than ours, and we can't be and have His ways. And in fact, we can't attain to His thoughts. His thoughts are higher than ours. In fact, that's what the verses say. The verses say that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, and, and and as the heavens are higher than the earth. And so, that's generally the explanation. And what I would urge this morning is that conclusion is wrong. That's not at all what these verses are teaching us. And so, it's important to get the right understanding. How do I know and what does the Bible say relative to that not being the conclusion? There are several uh, strands of thought that go through the Bible that help us appreciate that's not the right conclusion about these verses. Among them would be prophecy would tell us that's not right. And then there's Christ's teaching, Christ's example. Christ's expectations, the apostles' teaching, and faithful examples would all demonstrate that's not the right understanding of this passage. So, let's note a few of those this morning, and let's begin with prophecy and what it teaches. If you have there, you're in Isaiah, go back to Isaiah chapter 2, and notice what the prophet says about the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, and this passage is generally understood and properly, so I would urge to teach us that the Messiah is coming, and among the things He will do is He will build the house of God. It's not the only prophet that says it. 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13 says it, and we know from other passages that the Lord, the Messiah, is coming to establish the church. For this and other passages uh, is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And that's what these verses say. Verse number 1 says, the word which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it should come to pass that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow unto it. Verse number 3 says, And many people will come and say, Come, and go up, ye, to the house of the Lord. Let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of His ways, we will walk in His paths. It's those last two phrases that help us understand that this is not what these verses teach. For the Messiah that is coming is divine in His nature. The one who is coming is God. In fact, Matthew 1:23 says He is God with us. John 1, verses 1 through 3 says He is God. And verse 14 says the Word will be made flesh. All throughout the Bible, the New Testament tells us that the Christ is divine. What will He do when He comes? The verse says He will teach us of His ways. Well, He's divine. And what's He going to do? Teach us of the divine nature's ways. That's what he's going to do. Somebody might argue, well, Eric, I've heard you say that you can't know the mind of God. I've heard you say that. Further, I've heard you say it's among the most important and significant verses in Scripture. And you're right. I have said it. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 to 13 teaches it. But here's the difference. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 to 13 teaches that no one can know the mind of God unless He reveals it. What I'm talking about now is what happens after he reveals it. When he reveals his mind, you can know his mind. You can understand his mind. You can understand his thoughts and you can know his ways. In fact, That's what the New Testament teaches, that the one who is coming will teach us of his ways. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 4, says that whereby when you read, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. The Apostle Paul would also say of himself, we have the mind of God, 1 Corinthians 14. And so, when the one who is divine comes to earth and teaches us his ways, we can know his ways, we can know his thoughts. Furthermore. That's what Christ taught when he came. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and listen to his first address among humanity. When the Lord, the God of heaven, the God in flesh, when Jesus begins to teach, this is his teaching. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that's what you heard said, but no verse 44. But I say to you, well, who is the one saying it? the divine nature in a body. God is now saying, but I say to you, what should you do? You should love your neighbor and hate your—no, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Note the end of this chapter, verse 48. He doesn't just say he wants you to know that. Verse 48 says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How could you do that? if you couldn't know His ways. How could you do that if you couldn't know His thoughts? No! When He comes, He'll teach you His ways, you will now know His ways, and further, the expectation will be that you will walk in His ways. Your mind will be His mind. In fact, we quote the passage all the time. It's Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, and we all agree it should happen. Well what does Philippians 2, 5 say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But wait a minute. Christ Jesus is divine. He's God with us. If you could have the mind of Christ, guess what you'd have? You'd have the mind of God. Guess what your thoughts would be like? Your thoughts would be his thoughts. Guess what your ways would be like? Your ways would be His ways. We quote the verse, and then we go back to Isaiah 55 and say, you can't do it. Well, no, that's the exact expectation that when He comes, He teaches you His ways. Your mind will be His mind, and your ways will be His ways. We count all of those people in Hebrews chapter 11 as faithful. Why were they faithful? Because they were like God. Enoch walked with God. Abel pleased God. In Genesis 22, Abraham offered the son he loved to God. Isaiah 53, God offers the son he loves for man. He behaves just like God. Well, Eric, if the passage doesn't mean that, what does the passage mean? I'm glad you asked. Let's go back to Isaiah 55 and ascertain what the text says then. Remember that the most important word in Bible study is the word context. And what's the context here? Well, it began in verse number one. And listen to all the things that God is inviting Israel to do. He says in verse number one, "Come." ye to the waters. In the second half of that verse, he says, come and buy wine and milk. In verse 2, he says, listen carefully to me. In verse number 3, he says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen and live. And what does he say in verse 6 and verse 7? He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and return to me. What will happen if you do that? I will have mercy, and I will abundantly pardon. Why will he do that? Verse number 8 is the explanation of why. It begins with the word for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. About what? Wicked people returning. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. In fact, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Your thoughts and ways about what? About verse 6 and verse 7. About the wicked returning. What's God's thoughts about that? What's God's ways about that? If you seek, if you forsake, if you return, I'll pardon. I'll have mercy. Those are his thoughts. Those are his ways. And what does he say to Israel? You don't think like that. In fact, notice how he directs the conversation. He starts in heaven with his thoughts downward. He doesn't start with man's thoughts upward. You'll notice that he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. He says, my ways are not your ways. The verse does not say, your thoughts can't be my thoughts. Your ways can't be my ways. That's not what he says. It's quite the opposite. God's thoughts have already been expressed. God's ways have already been expressed. He's already showed and said that. The problem here is that's not Israel's ways. He will have mercy. He will abundantly pardon. What would they do? They wouldn't do that at all. In fact, a fuller discussion of God's ways and Israel's reaction is seen in the book of Ezekiel. If you will turn to Ezekiel 18, you will hear this discussion in earnest, backwards and forwards, God and Israel goes about this very thing, the righteous and the wicked and their acceptance or their rejection. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse four, God says, "The soul that sinneth, behold all souls are mine." The soul of the father, so also the soul of the son. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. He wants this proverb put out of the land, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You won't use that proverb anymore, and the reason is verse number four. Every person is accountable to God for themselves. Nobody inherits anybody else's sin, and nobody can transfer righteousness. Doesn't work that way at all. Each individual is responsible for his own actions, thoughts, and relationship with God. And then he illustrates that, beginning in verse five down to about verse 18, with one family and three generations of that family. He began with a man who is righteous, and God says this man is righteous, he follows after God verse 5 down to verse number 9, and God concludes about that man because of his righteousness, he'll live in his righteousness. Now he begins in verse number 10 over to about 13, 14, and he says that man has a son, and that son is nothing like his father. In fact, for every righteous thing the father did, the son did wickedness. And God concludes with regards to that son and says he will die in his iniquity. Now then, that man has a son. And so, if you're counting, we're on the third generation of a family. A father who is righteous, a son who is wicked, and then a grandson who is righteous. He's nothing like his father. He's like his grandfather. And the conclusion is, he will live in his righteousness. Now, God's position is, that's right. That's his way. Each individual responsible and accountable for their thoughts, their ways, their actions. And then you read these words in verse number 19. Verse number 19, Israel speaks and God says of them, yet you say, yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son practices justice and righteousness, he observed all my statutes and had done them, he will surely live. Now, this discussion picks up in earnest now because God then re-explains his position. Verse number 20, he restates, the soul that sinned it shall die. The father shall not bear the iniquity of the son, neither shall the son bear the iniquity of the father. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him. He then says in verse 21, but if a wicked man, hears our word, will turn— Turn from what? If he will turn from all his sins which he has committed, he's observed all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he will surely live, he will not die. God says conversely, if a righteous man will turn from his righteousness and lives a wicked life, God says all of his righteousness will be forgotten and in his wickedness now, he will die. That's verse 23 and verse 24. But notice verse 25. After hearing all of that, Again, God says, yet you say. Well, what are they saying? The way of the Lord is not, King James would have the word equal here. Other renders might say right or just. That's the idea. You've seen the scales of justice. The idea is that they would be level. They would be just. They'd be right. God's position on His way is this equal. It's fair. It's just. It's right. And what Israel is saying is, that's not right. That's not fair. Their ways are not His ways. Therein lies the problem. Now, if you were to continue to read the rest of this chapter, it will go back and forward like this all the way to the end. And God will keep reiterating, my ways are just, your ways are not just. You can actually see this lived out in the New Testament. If you'll turn over to the book of Luke chapter 15, you will actually see a discussion, not simply a discussion as we have in Ezekiel, but a real-life living demonstration of the conversation. The ways and disagreement in Isaiah 55, the, the ways and disagreement in Ezekiel 18 is actually lived out in Luke 15. When we read Luke chapter 15, it's important to appreciate that God is on the earth now, that God is in a body. Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. To which Jesus responded, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and have you not known me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Paul would say in Colossians 2 and verse number 9, speaking of Jesus, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What we have in the Christ is nothing short of the divine nature in a body. In other words, Matthew says, God with us. And so, if you would hold in your mind that God is the one having the discussion in Luke 15. Not the Father, the Christ, the Word, the second member made flesh, the divine nature, no less God, the divine nature in a body. We open up Luke 15 and verse number one and we read these words now, all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming to Him, God, Christ, and listening to Him. What happened when that occurred? Verse number two, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. What are they saying? This man, God, receives sinners and eats with them. Verse number three says, so He told them a parable. There's one parable in Luke 15 with three parts to it. He told them a parable, not three parables. Told them a parable. What's the parable? It's about receiving sinners. That's what the parable is about. You can focus on the lost coin if you like, and its value to the woman, and you could focus there. But verse 2 and verse 3 are why we have the parable. The parable is about receiving sinners. You could talk about the sheep that goes astray and the one, the shepherd who goes, leaves the 99 and go gets the sheep. But the reason in both of those instances there's rejoicing in heaven in the presence of angels. I only know of the Godhead being in the presence of angels. The Godhead is rejoicing. Why is there rejoicing in heaven? Twice it says over one sinner that repents rather than 99 just persons that need no repentance. What's the parable about receiving sinners? Whose way is that? God's way. What does Israel do? They disagree with God's way. And so when you get to verse number 11 and you begin talking about the boy, you should understand we're still talking about sinners and God receiving them. And so, Israel is in verse 1 and verse 2, grumbling that this man receives sinners. And you go a little further in verse number 13 and verse number 14, many days later, the youngest son gathered everything. The one who went to the far country, the one who sinned, the one who was in the pig's pen, that's the ones they disagree with. The sinners are out there. The publicans and the sinners have wasted their living riotously. What do they do? They come to themselves and they come home to the father. And so, the father is then pictured. And what does he do? Verses 22 to 24, when they come, he receives them. He runs to them, hugs them, embraces them, kills the fatted calf for them, gives them a wrong, a bragging and a shoes. And he says, this my son was dead. Who is that? Sinners. This man receives sinners who is it that receives sinners god that's his way who disagrees israel what happens in verse number 27 he said your brother has come home your father has killed the fat again that's what the servant told the older brother what's his reaction israel they became angry was not willing to go in his father came out and began pleading with him but he answered and said to them Look, for many years I have been serving you. That's what the older says to the father. And you've, you've never given me a, 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 a party. You've never killed a goat from me. Note the father's response in verse 30. When his son, this son of yours come home, devoured his well, He said to him, son, you have always been with me and you will, that all that is mine. is." But we had to celebrate. Why? Your brother was dead and is now alive. What's God's way? God's way is that if a person sins and turns away from him, and as he said in verse 6 and 7, if they will return, he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. Sometimes when people read Luke 15, they say, well, the woman raised the couch and scoured through the house and searched for the coin and did not stop until she found it. And then they they read the sheep, and they say, well, the shepherd left the 99, and he went out, and he searched diligently, and he found the sheep. But when the boy went away, the father stayed at home, and he didn't go seek him. Let me ask you a question. Who's giving the parable? The one who is speaking is God in the flesh. The fact that Christ is on earth is God seeking. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God is not saying your ways can't be my ways. He's actually saying, my ways aren't like yours, because if sinners repent, you won't have them back, but I will. And Israel disagrees. Why can you return to God? Because of His ways. Secondly, you can return to God because of His Word. That's verse 10 and 11. The illustration is nature. Verse number 10 says, for, again, by way of explanation, for, verse number 8, for, verse number 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse number 11 says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing that what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The thing that stands out about nature and about God's word is its consistency. Nature is created by God and it consistently does what God designed it to do. It doesn't need any tweaking, it doesn't need any changing, it doesn't need any updates or altering. When God placed the sun in the sky on the fourth day of creation, it has done its job ever since and will until the Lord returns. There's great consistency in nature. The rain and the snow are examples about that. First of all, what's noteworthy is their source. The prophet says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. The second thing is their sequence, how they do what they do. The Bible says they do not return without watering the earth. They don't just come down, they water the earth. But then thirdly, he says, they succeed in why God sent them and designed them. Their success is seen in the words, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, nature can be relied on because of those three things. And we understand and appreciate them. There is the law of sowing and reaping. Everything produces after its own kind. There is benefit in consistency, and therefore we know whatever we sow, we will reap. Supplies our food. The sun and moon and stars, the water cycle, the seed, the soil, the growth, all because of God. And we rely on it and live in it as a result. He takes that analogy and he pivots to the Word of God. Notice again verse number 11. In everything said in verse 10, he says, So, in the same manner, just mentioned, The physical seed, the spiritual seed, His Word will do the exact same thing. What is it about God's Word that allows us to return? First of all, we would begin in the same place, the source. The source is heaven. More specifically, you'll notice that the prophet says, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It's not simply from heaven, it's from the mouth of God, the very character of God. His ways and his word are one in the same. It's the perfect character of God that gives rise to his words. In fact, we are the same way. Our words and our ways furnish who we are. What we say and what we do consistently is who we are that's the way it's recorded in Scripture too when Luke wrote his book the book of Acts again to Theophilus he said these words in chapter 1 and verse number 1 he wrote about all things that Jesus began both to do and to teach his ways and his words you will find the same thing when you open your Bible in the beginning, God created. You will find the ways of God on display. You will find God's power. You will find God's created force and his action. You will find his mind as God works through creation. But you you don't know his character yet. What what? There are his ways, but what's his words? What's that like? You would need Exodus 34, verse 6 and verse 7, where God will tell you the name of the Lord, God is gracious and merciful and abundant and long-suffering and goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. You would need God saying those words, but you have his words and you have his ways. The source of God's word is his mouth. And as a result of God's Word, the sequence followed will do what it does. You'll notice the rain and the snow did not return without watering the earth. They did not return without blessings and benefits. They did not. And so the Bible says, God's Word will not return to me empty. What everyone should learn about God's Word is that God doesn't do empty chatter. You and I might have those conversations at the water cooler about nothing. You and I might have a conversation and somebody say, well, what were y'all talking about? At the end of which you both conclude, we was just shooting the breeze. Did it have any meaning? Nah. Any significance? Nah. We were just talking. You know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't just talk. God doesn't do empty chatter, God doesn't shoot the breeze, God's words don't leave his mouth and return empty. As a result of that, when God speaks, the world should listen. When God speaks, we should heed the warnings. If God warns, we should heed it. When God speaks, we should trust and obey. When he speaks, we should take heed to our ways and our thoughts and make sure they are aligned with his. God says, when I speak, my words will not return to me empty. Further, he says, they will accomplish that for which I sent it. Nature does that. It accomplishes what God designed it to do. It does furnish seed to the sower, it does provide bread to the eater, and God says, My word won't return empty either. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There are any number of reasons why that's the case, beginning with the fact that God is not one of us. Numbers 23 and verse 19, the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And then two questions are asked. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath He spoken, and did it not come to pass? If God said it, it will do what He said it will do. The reasons are simply this. God doesn't have any limitations to His words. We do. God's power is infinite. Ours is not. Sometimes you can have the best intentions. You can be as sincere as you are capable of being, and you can express words that come from your mind that are legitimate and reasonable, and you intend in every way to do them. Let's say you're going to give somebody a ride to the airport, and you say, well, my plane leaves at 10. I need to be there by 8. If you could come get me at 7, we'll be in good stead. And they say, okay, I'll be there at 7. They get up about 6, and they get dressed, and they're at the door ready suitcases packed standing by the door waiting on you to arrive and you don't come they began to look at the clock but you said you would come it gets later and later and later and then they call hey you said you were going to be here i meant to i was going to i got up at six i got dressed I was in the car by 6.30. I was on the road and I was ready to come get you. You know you don't live that far from my house. And so I was ready. And then there was an accident. All the lanes are blocked. I can't even get to an exit. I'm stuck. What happened? It wasn't your intentions. It wasn't your, your desire. We use an expression to describe this and we say, it was beyond my control. You know that's an expression God has never used. Why does God's Word not return to him void? Why does it accomplish what he intended every time he speaks? Because he doesn't have this issue. Because when he speaks, there is nothing beyond his control. Sometimes our issue is a lack of knowledge. I didn't know God doesn't have that problem. He does know. And sometimes, truth be told, we just flat out lie. I got afraid, so I lied. I got into this pickle, so I lied. I wanted to make you feel good, so I lied. God doesn't do that. There's never a time when God speaks that His Word does not accomplish what He sent it. Why can we come back to Him? Because he said, verse 6 and verse 7, it's God who said, if a wicked man will turn from his wickedness, if a wicked man will forsake his ways, if he will seek me, if he will forsake his ways, if he will return to me, God said, I will have mercy and I will abundantly pardon. It's because God's Word does not fail. It accomplishes that which he sent it. Friends, as a result of that, you and I should give heed to God's word in everything it says. You and I should obey every command that God gives. God said, don't eat of the tree. They should have obeyed that. Make an ark of gopher wood. See that you make all things according to the pattern. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Sing and teach and admonish one another. Repent and be baptized. Children, obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Elders, take heed to yourselves in the flock. Preachers, preach the word. Deacons, hold the mystery in a good conscience. Memories, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. Everybody, let your light so shine before men. Let your speech be always with salt, seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Everything he says, should be done, because his word will not return to him void, and because he gives warnings about not doing it. He warns, my son, if sinners entice thee to go in with them, consent thou not, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10 following. He warns, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good morals. But mom, you don't understand, he's not that bad. But dad, you don't get it, they're not that bad. If it's evil communications, it will corrupt. It will not improve. It will not make better. It will not be indifferent. If God said it'll corrupt, it'll corrupt. If it's evil communications, that's what's going to happen. There aren't any two ways about it because God said it. If God said, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You don't intend to go reap something, sow one thing and reap another, do you? Because God's Word is not going to return to him void. The reason you should heed the warning is because if he said it, it's going to be true. First Corinthians 6, verse number 9, be not deceived. Be not deceived. Know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, but we're going to get in anyway. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abuse themselves of mankind will inherit the kingdom of God. If God said they're not getting in, you can say all you want to, they are. If God said they're not getting in, you can say all you want to, but it's okay. If God said they're not getting in, let me tell you this, they're not getting in. His Word is not going to return to him empty. It will accomplish what he sent it to. You know, the same God said, you can come back, and you can. Thirdly, God's will is why we can come back. Verse 12 and verse number 13 teaches that. In fact, if you would just go through these two verses and notice how many times you see the word will, the reality is God can speak in a way in which no one else can speak. God can talk about things that are not as if they've already happened. God talked to Abraham about a child, and he talked to him about descendants coming from that child, and Abraham didn't even have a child. God speaks about the future in the present as if it's in the past because the will of God will succeed. Again, our limitations prevent us from talking this way. Who can say this morning, as we sit here and talk this morning and listen and study God's Word, who can say exactly and precisely what they will do tomorrow? Do you see our limitations? We can't even project 24 hours from now with certainty. But God talks that way. The proverb writer says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. Our ignorance is what prevents it. He says, for thou knowest not what a day may bring. Why can't I tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow? I don't even know if I'll be here tomorrow. Not only am I ignorant, I'm powerless to prevent it. Suppose somebody wanted to do me harm and accomplish their mission, then they would succeed. Not God. Notice how God talks in verse 12 and verse 13. God says in verse 12, for you will go out with joy. You will. Not only are you going to go out with joy, he says, and be led forth with peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth in the shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord or an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Why can we return to God? Because the will of God will be done. God has no limitations about time. God has no limitation about knowledge. God has no limitation about power or ability. And therefore, if God says it, it will be done just as God said it will. What should that do for us? It should instill confidence, and it should ultimately give rise for us to glorify God. You know, when you're reading the Bible, you're never far from Jesus. Really doesn't matter where you're reading, you're never that far from Jesus. What happens if you read Genesis? You're never that far from Jesus. Genesis 3.15, he's coming. what if you just throw me in the Psalms in the middle of the Bible, Eric? They'll be talking about Jesus. He's coming. He's on his way. Go a little further into the prophets, and they'll be talking about Jesus. Open up the New Testament, and he's here. Close the New Testament, and he's coming again. You're just never far from Jesus. What that means is you're never far from returning to God because Jesus is the way back. This chapter ends with the expression, an everlasting sign the sign and the memorial are about god they stand as incense of his character of his name and of a memorial and sign a token that god will have us back ultimately through our lord and our savior jesus christ why can you return to god because of god's ways because of god's word because of God's will. The only question this morning is, if you need to return, will you? If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, please know that God sent Jesus for the express purpose of you coming back to him. And he will receive you. If you'll believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you'll repent and change your heart and your mind, the direction and tone of your life, If you'll confess the name of Jesus, and if you'll be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins, you can then rise and walk in newness of life in the light with God. Sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, there is a mistake that can happen if you're a Christian. And one of the things that we typically do, not always, but sometimes we do when reading the Old Testament is we often take the lessons and the teaching and the information and we jump over the church and we jump to application of the world. And so we might read something back here about return and return and return and we might get into our minds that, well, if sinners need to return, that's the world. And I'm not here to tell you that's not true because it is. But please know that Isaiah is writing to God's people. And the parallel to God's people in the Old Testament is the church in the New Testament. And the publicans and sinners in Luke 15 are Jews. And so by way of application, it's important to understand also that God's people leave And he wants them back. And in every congregation that I'm aware of, we have an expression called lost sheep. And unfortunately, it's typically viewed as an afterthought to evangelism, whereby we go out and seek sinners and then get around to being concerned about brethren. And they don't get the same energy. They don't get the same effort. They don't get the same love. And you should know. That's backward relative to what we're reading. Does God want the world saved? Absolutely. Let it never be said otherwise. Does he want us to evangelize? Make no mistake about it. But if you jump from prophets to world— and miss the church? Jesus is God on the earth in Luke 15, and the publicans and the scribes are the ones crying out. In Ezekiel 18, it's Israel that says God's ways are not right. You and I, if our ways are going to be God's ways, and if you are a Christian, we have to raise the level of concern for our brethren who have wandered away and gone back to the world and treat them like sinners who need to come back to God. Not a Christian? Become one. If you are a Christian, your ways not only can be God's, our ways must be God. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.